my intention for the seven weeks that we have together um, is that each week would be a different topic or maybe a couple of topics which relate to each other in, in some way, shape, or form. It's going to be very Bible-heavy this time. Last time it was kind of just me talking. Obviously, we walked through the Bible, so it was Bible-heavy in one sense, but not as much actually walking through uh, passages of Scripture and learning from them. And that foundations course uh, of, of walking through the introduction was intended uh, to give us our bearings so that if we were to do anything like this where we walk a little bit more closely through elements of, of the Bible, um, we would have those bearings, we'd understand the message, we'd understand the intent of the scriptures. And uh, so in, in many ways what we're doing this evening is um, dependent on at least the philosophy and the expectation of what, we, what we've studied already. In other words, um, everything that I talked about last time about our presuppositions that the Bible is, uh, is inspired and that the Bible uh, is accurate and all of those things are going to carry over into this course and what we're going to learn about uh, each week that we're here. So hopefully, um, if, if all goes as planned, each week will kind of be a self-contained module um, and there might be a little bit of, of overlap or, or rolling over from one week to the next if we don't quite get enough finished or if we finish early, then we can just roll over into the next week and, uh, or start on the next weeks and then roll over into it. And uh, then, you know, we can correct that on video and kind of put them all together later. Um, but that, that'll be the intent of this time together. Um, and then hopefully that'll also mean that those people that can't be here for one or the other, you're not going to be lost, right? Building on top of one to the next and such if you can't be here for one week. Um, and if you can't listen to the, the topic before the next week. Also on this sheet, I give you my contact information, which you should have from the last class. Um, and then the podcast address. So I've actually created a podcast this time. Instead of just having a website where you can go and click on the link, um, you can actually subscribe to it on iTunes. Um, I've already gotten that approved. And then there is also the, just the address there. So if you take that top address, uh, right underneath podcast address, you pop that into your, your podcast application and it'll, it'll subscribe to that for you. And then as I get them uploaded, it'll automatically, um, of course, put them on your phone and such. If you have any other podcasts, it'll, it'll work the same way as any other podcast. And then with YouTube videos, which we are recording this time, my intent um, is um, right now, the, the page that I had up last time where the audio was, for now I'm going to plan to put on that page um, YouTube links, and they'll be private links for now. If, if uh, things change, then I might just make them public links, and you can just go to the Legacy Baptist Church website, uh, YouTube page and, and find the links there in a playlist. But we'll have to see uh, how that plays out, whether or not we want them to be public links or, or just private links that we share. Uh, um, can, can you hear us? Can you hear Jamin okay? You hear me okay? Okay. Okay, so uh, that's the syllabus, as it were. Um, our, our plan for the next several weeks, uh, as was mentioned, uh, the weeks, weeks one through seven, actually the dates for those are the Wednesday dates, not the Thursday dates. I apologize for that. I didn't switch it. I switched the top, but not the, um, the, the dates on each week. So you can just bump those uh, ahead by one day, and that will benefit you there. 
Uh, so this week we're we're talking about two separate but related topics, very very closely related, uh, though distinct in some ways. Uh, justification and sanctification. So as we we walked through our class last time, we mentioned very um, pointedly that Jesus is kind of the pinnacle of all history, right? You have the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the end where the heavens and the earth are restored to their state of, of kind of pre-destruction, pre-sin. And so you have the beginning and the end with, with this restoration process, but in between, uh, mankind is in trouble. Man is in bad shape, and uh, we have rebelled against God. We are now uh, sinful. We are born into sin, and we need... A savior, and history really revolves around that central theme of Jesus Christ coming about two thousand years ago and being that savior. And we saw that as we went through our overview. So, one of the primary elements of that process of Jesus coming and saving us is a word that's called justification. And we'll talk a little bit more about what justification is in a little bit. But uh, I've got uh, several chunks of scripture uh, that we're going to read. And the first thing that we're going to talk about is in relation to justification, we're going to talk about our need. Uh, So when we look at the world around us, we uh, see a a world that's that's still in bad shape. There are... um, there's violence, there's evil, there's terrible things that happen. Uh, we struggle with some of those questions. Why do bad things happen to good people? Um, we see a, a lot of contention as it surrounds religion. We see a lot of contention as it surrounds uh, truth. And the Bible is not silent in regard to these topics. And a lot of what we're going to do this evening is really just walk through a, a good chunk of, of the book of Romans. So I've put everything that we're going to be walking through on the sheet this evening. However, um, I would you know, you know, certainly invite you in the weeks to come if you'd like to bring your Bible, um, if you'd like to follow along. As, as per last course, I, I do use the King James, so um, that's what we'll be using here. And um, then, of course, you can compare and contrast with your own Bibles, uh, either here or at home. So the Bible says, beginning in verse 18, as Paul is writing to the, the church at Rome, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So as we begin um, this, this introduction to justification, the need for justification, what we find on the outset is that, that Paul says that nobody has an excuse for not knowing that there's a God because the invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen, that they are understood by the things that are made. Uh, The Psalms tell us the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verse 3, I believe, verse 2, perhaps. Let me me turn there and and be sure I get get the reference right. tells us, it's verse 3, through, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. And 
uh, as we look around, the, the marks of, of a design are all around us. And that's a really important point as we, as we seek to understand our relationship to God and the relationship of other people to God. Of course, we're in a, a time period where, um, where many people claim and, and, and w- would believe that science has made God obsolete. Uh, that the material world and the understanding of the material that we have has made it to where we don't need to uh, believe in God. However, that's not what Romans chapter 1 tells us. Romans chapter 1 tells us that the, crea- that the world around us, the created world, testifies of the eternal power of God so that everyone is without excuse. That there is nobody on this earth who does not know uh, in, in their hearts, if we can put it that way, that there is a God. And that God has authority. If God created us, then it stands to reckon that by virtue of Him creating us, He owns us, that He has right to us. And by virtue of Him having a right to us, we have obligations to Him. And this is why man is so quick, so, so uh, uh, quick to want to cast off the knowledge of God. Because if we, can, if we can convince ourselves that God does not exist, or that God does not care, or that God is flawed such as in the mythology, Greek and Roman and, and such, if we can convince ourselves that the gods are just as flawed as we are, then we can convince ourselves that we have no obligation to him or them, at which point all bets are off. And that's what we see as we continue. Verse 21 says, Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and to four-footed beasts and to creeping things. So if mankind can, can make God something that's fallible or make, something, make God like them, if they can get a handle on God and put God in this little box and control Him, then they can have control rather than God being in control. And that's what man has always wanted. That's what man has always sought since the rebellion of Adam and Eve in the garden. Man has wanted to find a means by which to claim control and to, uh, to state that God has no control over them or to usurp God's authority over them. And so Romans 1 tells us that this is the state of mankind. This is where we live. This is where we are. But there are consequences to this. Choices have consequences. Every choice that we make has consequences. And there are consequences when we as the creation count, uh, 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 discount the creator. When we as those who are created discount not just that we are created, but the way in which we are created. And this is a, a, a really big controversy today uh, in our society. And it's... A, it's, it's in other societies, it's been a controversy for a little bit longer than our society. But is there a way that we are actually designed? Is there a way that we function best? All throughout this course, what we're going to be looking at is how we align with design. With anything that we, that, that's created, when you use it the way that it's designed to be used, it works best. 
You open up a manual, you see the tolerances, you see these various elements, and then you work within those in order to make sure that it's, it's going to work to maximum efficiency. The Bible tells us that we've been designed a certain way, and when we, when we live that way, it's, it works best for us. And the farther we get from that way, the more things are going to fall apart. And that's what Romans 1 is going to describe next, is, is what happens when we cast off the Creator, when we ignore Him, or we take what He has created and we begin to twist it and pervert it to make it something else. So the Bible says in verse 24, Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves the recompense of their error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. And this is a, this is a description, a statement of what happens when man rejects God. This is, this is man in his, it, because we are born sinners, and we can, we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to Romans 5, and we won't be reading all of, of Romans 1 through 5 here, but uh, because we are born as sinful people, we have in us this thing called sin, we default to this state as we rebel against God. We default to this thing, these things, and these things are the manifestations, the symptoms of a deeper problem. So the way I like to describe it is that it's, it's as if we have a virus. My, my girls just got over a, a cold about a week ago, uh, a little less than a week ago now, and my youngest had a, had a fever, and she had a runny nose, and she had a cough, and she was, you could just tell, she, she, she didn't have that normal brightness in her eyes. And as she was going through this process, my wife and I knew that the fever, and the cough, and the runny nose, they were not the problem. They were the symptoms of a deeper problem. The deeper problem was some virus that was in her that was causing everything to take place, right? So the body, the, the temperature, body temperature goes up in order to keep the virus from being able to reproduce as, as quickly, and that way the white blood cells can, can kill it, and then the body can regain control. And, and so all of these elements of, of the problem that we see externally, the fever and the cough, and such are actually only symptoms of a deeper problem. And that's kind of the same idea here. 
that when we see all of these things that were discussed, the covetousness and the maliciousness and the envy and the murder and the debate and the deceit and the backbiters and the haters of God and proud and, and disobedient to parents is even on that list, as we see all of those things, these are symptoms of a deeper problem. They aren't the problem themselves, but they're symptoms of something much deeper. And this is important because we can try all day we can try our entire lives to, to get rid of the symptoms. And we might even be able to be somewhat successful at getting rid of the symptoms of our problems. But getting rid of the symptoms doesn't get rid of the actual virus. It doesn't get rid of the actual illness. I can give my daughter Tylenol in order to, re to reduce the fever, and she'll feel better. But I'm not actually curing anything by reducing her fever. Because the fever is only there to get to, to help kill the virus. Until the virus is taken care of, the fever will just keep coming back and coming back and coming back for as long as I'm, you know, for as long as, as the, the Tylenol is not running through her system or whatever it is that I give her at that particular time. And that's the same idea here. This is showing us that there's a major problem and that that major problem comes as a result of mankind re rejecting the natural created purpose for him and the order in which the world has been created. Now as we think about this, this is, uh, it's, it's under the point, the need. This is the problem. This is the need. This is mankind. And, and it, it answers a lot of questions for us even about today. Um, as people look at you know, school shootings and as people debate in society, again, as we talked about in our last class, um, we, we, we all come from different places, from different angles on different things, but at the end of the day, what we're here to do in this class is to look at what the Bible says. And if we open up the Bible and we look at what the Bible has to say, and we start to compare and contrast based upon what the Bible actually has to say, well, then that's going to change the way we think about some things. And when we start to identify God's design, this is going to make a, a difference in how we think. We don't have to think this way, but if we don't think the way that the Bible presents, then we just need to know the consequences, which is that we are thinking in, con in contradiction to the Word of God. So why is it, as we've talked about before, why is it that Typically speaking, as we, as we think of uh, the, the conservative orthodox Christian viewpoints, why is it then that things such as homosexuality are um, things that are, are not accepted? Well, it's not because we look at those people and say, these are just horrible, unredeemable people. It's simply that we recognize that there's a design and that God has a design. And as we looked in Romans chapter 1 already... Um, that it, it speaks directly to that, that um, the men leave the natural use of the men and burn in lust one toward another, and the women do the same, that this is a, this is a natural outworking of the rejection of God in society. That the farther society gets from God, the more these things are going to become normal, acceptable, and desirous in the human heart because they have rejected God and God's design. God designed man and woman to be together. He designed man and woman to be together for procreation, 
uh, he has designed that from all the way back in the Garden of Eden. And as man rejects God, man will also cast off anything that reminds him of God. If I don't want to be reminded of God, if I want to completely cast off God, I want to get rid of various elements of society. I want to get rid of marriage because marriage is something that God ordained. I want to get rid of the standard week because the standard week is something that God ordained. I want to get rid of him in history and they've already tried to do that with switching BC and AD to BCE and, and um, BC. And I would want to start working out all of these elements of society that are going to remind me of God. And that's what we see. And we shouldn't be surprised by that because that's what the Bible says. Now we stand wherever you know we're, we're going to stand on these issues, but the Bible is not um, ambiguous as it relates to these things. These things are evidences of our need. The fact that, that society has cast off God uh, so dramatically is evidence of our need. And you know we talk about things such as um, uh, homosexuality, but that being said, um, I remind you that on this same list is envy and covetousness and disobedience to parents, right? So it's not to say that, that one sin versus another sin, as we look at it, that, that we can rank them and say, well, I'm okay because I'm only disobedient to my parents. No, it's still a symptom of the problem. It's still just as much a symptom of the problem, in fact, uh, in, in many ways. We are still seeing... Uh, a, a casting off of the design of God. And of course, that part would be headship. Any questions on, on, on that? Okay. Well, don't take my word for it. Don't take my word for it. But take the, take the Bible's word for it. And, and that's, that's what we want throughout all this class. Basically, the point is just me telling you what the Bible says and walking you through it. Um, so that we can see God's design elements. And then, since it's in the book, getting on God's side is what we want to do here. Now, I've used this word sin several times. And on the second page right at the top there, I define that for you. Uh, according to the Bible, a sin is anything that I say, anything I do, or anything I think that is contrary to the character, to the will, or to the word of God. And the Bible says that the wrath of God rests upon the world because of sin, and then man's sinful actions are evidence of the sinful heart. So, so when, when mankind does these sinful things, it is evidence of a deeper problem. When we see things like the school shootings that have been taking place and, and, uh, and the, the um, terrible terrorist attacks and bombings and knifings and all of those things happening all around the world, what is going on there, what we're seeing there is we're seeing the pains of various societies that have rejected the true and living God. Now some of these are actually being worked out by people that claim God, but not the true God. And if it were the true God, then these things would not be working themselves out because they're characteristics of those who are walking uh, contrary to the word of God. And so man's natural solution to the sin problem, according to Romans 1, is to deny sin's existence. And so it's called all sorts of other things today other than sin. If I can kill God, then I can kill the conscience that drives me to him. 
and then I don't have to feel accountable for my actions anymore. The denial of a moral accountability, however, brings about moral evil. Morality is, is not just defined, it indeed cannot just be defined by uh, society or culture. If it was just defined by society or culture, then morality simply ceases to exist because it's just a, a, a creation of our, of our own making. It's, it's in our imagination. I was reading a really interesting article the other day about, um, about the idea of meaning and meaning outside of, of a higher purpose, outside of a God. And, and so people say, well, I create my own meaning. Okay, well, then you've just conjured up meaning out of nothingness and, and therefore there's really nothing to it. If, if meaning is only in the eye of the beholder, if morality is only in the eye of, of the beholder or in, in a social contra contract that we have made with one another, then it really has very little weight and, and it really means effectively nothing. If that's all that it is, then we devolve into a deeper level of Darwinism that says that the, the weak need to be removed so that the strong can move forward survival of the fittest, and in a survival of the fittest mentality, it really doesn't matter whether or not I'm kind. As a matter of fact, those things are hindrances, aren't they? In a survival of the fittest mentality. Now, what I do is I, I, I identify the weakest person that has the greatest advantage, and I take him out, and I take his advantage. And that's how society must function if we're in a, in a Darwinian system. If we're in this idea where there is no such thing as accountability, and if there is accountability, then it must be to something higher than just ourselves. There must be a higher moral arbiter. And of course, the Bible tells us that moral arbiter is God. There are plenty today that, that are, are starting to think that that moral arbiter is something, just not God, right? So you have the idea that aliens seeded the planet or whatnot. It takes just as much faith, more faith in many ways, than believing the Bible, and all it is is it's replacing one creator with another creator in an attempt to deny the existence of, uh, of God. So it all kind of falls apart as far as any arguments against the Word of God as authoritative and against the God who created the Word, especially when anyone who lines up with this book will find that uh, it is how we've been designed. Questions on Romans 1. The need. So we have a need. The need is clear because we're sinners. Uh, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, and that sin is evident in the world around us. It is evident every day, and it's, it's becoming more and more evident um, all the time. And that's to show us our need. Well, then we have the problem. So there's a need, and the need is that we're sinners, and a, a, a good portion of this world is denying the existence of God, but not all, right? There, there's also a good portion of this world that, that acknowledges God's existence. And now we have the next divergence. So the first divergence, if you think about it this way, is that you've got men who diverge into, I don't want to be accountable, so I'm going to pretend there's not a God, or I'm going to create a God out of the trees, or uh, the sun, or the moon, or something that, that I can control, and that I can, I, can be, I can manipulate to make him what I want him to be. And then there's those that say, no, there actually is a God that has expectations, and I need to identify those expectations. Now, if we follow that path to there is a God that has expectations, that's going to diverge again. And as we follow that path, we get to the point where now the question becomes, 
can I please this God? Can I earn my way to this God? Can I somehow pacify this God? And that's the question, the problem that comes up in Romans 3. I give you verses 9 through 20 here. The Bible says, What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise, for we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way, they are altogether become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. That would be a type of snake. Whose mouth is full of cursings and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So we have this description of, of mankind. And the Bible tells us that none are righteous. No, not one. There is nobody that in his natural state is right with God. And then it gives us some of those evidences again of, of destruction. There's no fear of God before their eyes, these sorts of things. Verse 19 says, Now we know that whatsoever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So the Bible tells us that as God created uh, a law, and as we trace through the Bible last time, we, we can go all the way back to uh, the, the Ten Commandments to really solidify the essence of God's law. Right? And those Ten Commandments being the essence, the first five being a relationship between man and God, the second five being the relationship between man and man. Uh, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Uh, honor thy father and mother. Thou shalt not lust. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. All of these uh, commandments and what those commandments are intended to do is they're intended to show us that we fall short. So I talked about that divergence of, of people that acknowledge that there is a God. There's a group of people that acknowledge there is a God who say, well, there is a God and he has expectations and I'm going to devote the rest of my life to meeting those expectations so that when I get to heaven, God will look at me and say, wow, you're a really, really good person and he'll let me into um, heaven. The idea of... and, and, and afterlife of paradise. And then there's another group that says, I fall short of that. There's no way that I can get myself into God's good graces because I'm already guilty. And that's what Romans chapter 3 tells us, that by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law shows us just how far short we fall. So every week I... Uh, interact with people in a, in a jail setting. I'm a chaplain at the jail. And at the jail, uh, the people that are in there have fallen short of the law. They're in there because they've offended the law and now they have to pay for that uh, offense that they, have, that they have committed. Now, in, in societal sense, the only ones that, ha that end up paying for the laws that they break are those who get caught. 
God catches everyone, right? Because God is all-knowing, God is all-seeing, God knows, knows all things and understands all things. So God sees all. We can't pull the wool over his eyes. We can't um, get him to, to not see what we are doing or, or just play the game, right, and look good on the outside and be a mess on the inside and, and still convince him that we're okay. And if God is just, and if by the law no flesh can be justified, then it stands to reason the problem is I can't earn my way to him. I can't do enough good things to get to God because I've already done bad things, therefore I'm already guilty. And if God is just, if he's a just judge, then he can't just overlook the bad things I've done because I've wanted to do some good things because then he's not just anymore. And if we say, well, then I guess I'm just going to have to be sinlessly perfect, well, it's too late at this point because by the time I understand that I need to be sinlessly perfect, I've already not been sinlessly perfect. I'm already toast. And fortunately, we're all that way. And I say fortunately because if there was somebody who, who, who wasn't, if there was somebody that was, sin, that was sinlessly perfect, he would destroy the curve. He'd be the only one that could get in and everyone else would, be obviously, would obviously fall short because the one guy was able to get in. So we've got a real problem here. And the problem is that all men are guilty before God and no man can justify himself. By our very nature, we have fallen short. And this is why God's law exists. This is why... God revealed himself legally in, in, in judicial terms. So we see that God has revealed himself, especially on our last class. We saw in the Old Testament God revealed himself uh, far more judicially than in the New Testament. In the New Testament we see a lot of grace. Uh, we see that in the Old Testament through repentance and mercy, but uh, we also see God very judicially in the Old Testament. And the reason why it's so important to understand God as judicial, in other words, as holy, as righteous, as just, is because it helps us understand that God can't just let us in. He can't just say, well, you, you tried your best, you did well enough, I'm going to let you in. Because if God does that, he's simply not just anymore. And the Bible says God is just and that he cannot deny himself. So that's the problem. We've got a need. And the need is sin. That need is seen all around us. That need is the thing every day. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? It's not, it, that's not about God. Now God is in control. God is over all things. But God has allowed us to make our own choices. Man ushered sin into this world. Man brought into a, a perfect creation imperfection. And now man is living out the consequences of his choices. And so as, as children die young and as people make horrible choices and as good people die and these sorts of things, it's not that God is this horrible God, it's that God is allowing us to sleep in the bed that we've made. And that's a part of the process of helping us see that we can't do it without Him. It's the part of the process of helping us see that we are in need. And, and that's what we see. We've got the, the, pro, the need, we're sinners, the problem, I cannot earn my way to God. I cannot earn my way. 
There's not enough good I can do to outweigh the bad that I've done. If, if I were standing before a judge and I'd done wrong, and I said, Judge, I know I've done wrong, but I've done a lot of good things too. Shouldn't my good outweigh my bad? That, if, if, if that judge is anywhere near the kind of judge we would actually want in this society, I mean, maybe, maybe nowadays uh, that, that, that might have a little bit more weight than it should, but if that judge is legitimately just, we would hope that the judge would not say, well, because you've done some good things, I'm not going to give you what the law says you need. Because in that sense, society begins to break down. Justice begins to break down. Now we're choosing winners and losers in the justice system. The old... Um, yeah, but they do that all the time. Well, they do. But that's not justice, right? No, but that's what they do all mm. the time. And I mean, it's prevalent. That's why you have the corruption in the Department of Justice. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And they do pick winners and losers. But, and, and, it, and it shows a degeneration of our society and our justice system. And it's, we, we, we're reaping the negative effects of that every day. Now, the, the very fact that we're reaping negative effects from them choosing winners and losers, the very fact that we see that happening, and, and you can see it happening every day, and you can see it happening in, in, in any number of ways, um, even to the extent where uh, there's no such thing as really paying your debt to society anymore. Your, your, your errors follow you for the rest of your life. Right? And you can't just pay your debt, be done, move on, and not have that record, not have that following, not have those things. There's no such thing anymore. Justice uh, has been, has been uh, dramatically uh, um, lessened in our society, but God is not that way. And as we think about what justice truly is, justice is, as you can see it on some of the, the old monuments, it's the woman with the sword in one hand, the scales in the other, and a blindfold, right? Justice is blind. Justice is not about feelings. Justice is not about emotions. Justice is about facts. Justice is about weighing right and wrong in the balance and then dealing with that. And that pure idea of justice, that's who God is. That's who he must be. Now, we always like a system that's working in our favor, right? So that if I'm the rich kid then I don't get in trouble for the thing that uh, the, the, the other person gets in, in trouble for because I've got the lawyers and I've got the dad with influence and those sorts of things. We all like that when that's on our side. We don't like it when we're on the other end. Well, there is no one that is in good with God in that sense. Nobody can appeal to dad to get him in with God because God is just. And that's where we stand before God. Any, any questions or thoughts or additions to that? Well, I yes, take issue with it in, in a sense that you know, God has a, the right for forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And it's by the grace of God we should so, be accepted. You, passed on or whatever. Y yes. Uh, and so it is... But, isn't necessarily done. He doesn't have to take a precedent because you did good over here. Everybody else does the same thing. That's yes, God, God is gracious. God is gracious, and He offers he forgiveness. The people who are really feeling bad about the things that they did mm -hmm. and recognize that they did bad things. Well. 
we'll, we'll continue to talk about that as we walk through the whole process. Um, I, I, I see where you're going, but the question is not so much, is God gracious or does God recognize the heart of a man as far as his, his um, whether he's sorry for what he's done and such. But the question becomes, how can God be that way and still be just? Because the Bible says God is just. Can God both offer mercy and grace and forgiveness while simultaneously being just? And this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where we realize that we've got a problem that we can't fix on our own. That God's going to have to meet us not just halfway, but all the way on this. Because I can't do it. And that's what we've just been seeking to establish so far. Yeah, but to a degree, though, that's why we pray. We ask for forgiveness. We ask for forgiveness for other people's injuries and all this kind of stuff. We ask for forgiveness for the sins that we've committed. Otherwise, why pray? Well, if he can't grant us the grace of forgiveness. Third week is prayer, so we'll get there. Um, he, he can grant us forgiveness, but the question becomes, now if we think about the justice system, if, again, if I stood before a judge and said, judge, I'm truly sorry for what I did, now don't punish me. Give me forgiveness, give me grace. We would be, it would be a, it would be a, a atrocity if a judge gave somebody, did not give somebody what the law said to give them on the basis of the fact that they were sorry. They do it every day. Right, but it's an... But they're injustice. It's injust, right? Yeah, I agree. Right, and that's what, that's what we're saying. Now, now the, the idea that we're, we're focusing in right now is justice. We can compare, but, but this is what Romans 1 says. If we try to make God like us, then, then God becomes meaningless. God is not like us. God is just. Sin must be punished. And by the deeds of the law, no man is justified in his sight, the Bible says. By the things that we do or don't do, man is not justified. It's what the Bible says. And so now we have to figure out what that means. How is it that the Bible, how is it that I can have a right relationship with God? How is it that I can be forgiven if the Bible says that I can't be forgiven by the deeds of the law? That I cannot be justified, made right with God by, by my actions or by my inactions. That we're all under sin. That there's none righteous, that there's none that understand, that there's none that naturally seek after God. And, and so this is, this is the problem, the need and the problem, and that gives way to the solution. So this is where we're going with this. How is it then that God can both be just and justify the ungodly. How is it that God can both be just and offer forgiveness and mercy? Because they don't, they're not compatible. Now within us, we see that there are times where we, or the justice system as it exists uh, today, offer mercy at the expense of justice. But that's what it is. If we're being honest with ourselves, it's mercy at the expense of justice. Every time they give somebody a lesser sentence than what is on the books because of some mitigating factor, they are granting mercy at the expense of justice. 
And that's not really what the system is for. That, that there are other places for mercy. There are other places for, for, for grace. But that's not what the system is for. The system is meant to mete out justice. And with that baseline... Did you follow that? So the concept is, just because we use the phrase the justice system doesn't mean it's practicing real justice. Right? And that when you offend, and there's a consequence for the offense, anything less than giving the consequence is, is not justice. It's injustice. Thank you. Um, so, so, and, and while there would be times where we would want that, because it's somebody that we know, we understand the circumstances behind it, you know, this is the reason, and that's why we have various degrees, right? First degree murder, second degree murder, involuntary manslaughter, and whatnot, so that you can grant justice while accounting for various factors. We, we recognize that justice is, is blind and that God is just. So that leaves us in a bad spot. And that's why Romans continues. It doesn't leave us it doesn't leave us there. We've just left it there so far. So the solution on page 3. Verse 21 says, "But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe." For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. So, uh, and we'll continue there in a moment, but the fact is, the Bible says that, that God is able to be both just and to justify the unrighteous. And, and this, is, this is the miracle of God that brings about salvation. So, as we think about this idea, we have God... And he is just. And God being just means that he must punish those that offend the law. And if we want to talk about the law in its simplest terms, we can just go to the Ten Commandments. And if we go to the Ten Commandments, that, then we know that every single one of us has offended. Every single person has offended. And that's what Romans 3 says. That for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that every single person has offended God, has offended His law, has offended His expectations. So we have all fallen short of God's glory, which means man, being sinful or having violated God's law, cannot be right with God cannot have a right relationship with God. So what the Bible says God did is, and this is the gospel, he sent his son Jesus. And Jesus 
the Bible says, was a man. So he was like you and I. He had um, the same feelings, the same desires. He was born without sin because he was born, and we talked about this last time, because he didn't have a father, right? And the sin is passed down from father to son and father to daughter. He didn't have a human father. His father was God. So he was born without a sin nature, but he was born of a human mother. He was born a man. He was born a 100% man. And as a man, he had the right to represent humanity. So imagine that you're standing before that judge and you actually have a legitimately just judge. And that legitimately just judge cannot, will not, just let you go or will not give you mercy because that is not the function of a legitimately just judge. So now you're in trouble because you have this sentence that you have to meet out. But that just judge says, I want to help man out. And there's a person who is willing to serve that time for you. So that person sits in the jail cell for that year or two years or however long it is, and they sit in that, that jail cell for you. And then when you stand before the judge, the judge says, well, here's the thing. You are guilty, and your crime must be paid for. There's a debt to society that must be paid. However, there is somebody who, never having done anything wrong, paid that debt sat in that jail cell for two years and the debt to society is now paid, if you'll accept it, we will put his time, because he'd never done anything wrong, so his time was not for his own problems, on your account and you can go free. Because society, the debt to society has been paid. The two years needed to be served, the two years were served, just not by you. And so now you can go free. And the Bible says this is what God did. That the Father sent His Son, Jesus Christ, and Jesus lived a perfect life. He never once sinned. He never once did anything wrong. Which means that He had no debt with the Father. He had no sin debt. He had no justice that needed to be served. Now, if he had even one little bit of sin in his life, there's no way he could pay for my sin or your sin because he's got his own to pay for now. And the, the, the penalty, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, we'll get there, says the wages of sin is death, separation from God. So if he had ever sinned, then he could not pay for anyone else's sin. But that he never sinned, the Bible says that he was righteous. And so when Jesus went to the cross and he hung on that cross, the Bible says God took your sin and my sin and he punished Jesus for it on the cross. That's what the cross was about. As Jesus knelt in the garden of Gethsemane and he prayed and he said, Father, let this cup pass from me. The cup was not just that he had to suffer. You know, th th this, uh, tomorrow's Good Friday, right? 
Tomorrow's Good Friday, and we're going to consider the death of Jesus Christ, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That crucifixion, the, hor the, 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 the worst part about that crucifixion, the thing that was truly terrible about that crucifixion was not that he was beaten, lashed, crown of thorns was placed on his head. Those are the things that we relate to because those are the things that, that are, are painful, but that's, that's very temporary. The real thing, the real dread of that cross was when from uh, after there was darkness from the the from noon to the third uh, to the from the sixth to the ninth hour from noon to three there was darkness and at the end of that Jesus cried out my God my God why hast thou forsaken me and what that indicates is that there was a separation between the Father and the Son that God had judicially placed your sin and my sin on Jesus and because he was bearing our sin God the Father and God the Son fell out of fellowship for the first time in the history of history. And that moment is encapsulated in 2 Corinthians 5.21 And he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus paid for our sin on the cross, the Bible says. And he took all of that sin. He was made the propitiation. That word means the satisfaction, the satisfying. He was made the satisfaction of man's sin. So man's sin is paid for. And then, if we want to think of it this way, if we think of uh, uh, um, God and there being a debt, Let me put that arrow the other way. There's a debt between God and man. And that debt is that there is sin. In Adam, all sinned, right? Adam rebelled against God. Mankind fell into sin. And since then, we've had this problem, this debt. Well, the Bible says that Jesus paid that debt. So now we have a third actor come in here. Jesus. And Jesus pays my debt. And like with anything else, if you've got a, a mortgage and that mortgage is lumped with a whole heap of other mortgages and sold to uh, another company, now that debt is no longer owed directly to God. As a matter of fact, there's nothing now between God and, and, and man. But now Jesus owns my debt. He paid it. With his blood, the Bible says. So now he owns my debt. And that he owns my debt, now he decides what to do with that debt. He decides how that debt is released. Now, God is the judge. The Father, that would be. I, 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 I might, as far as the Trinity is concerned, let me be a little more specific here. The Father. The Father is the judge. And between the Father and man, now there's nothing. Jesus paid that debt. Sin is paid for. But now Jesus holds the key. How do I get to heaven? Well, I can, as far as me and the Father is concerned, I'm, I'm, I'm good. But I have to be right with Jesus. 
And this is where the gospel comes in. John 3, 16-18, you have on your sheet, Therefore God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on Him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And so now that our debt is judicially paid for, and transferred, if you want to say it, to Jesus... Jesus holds the key, and Jesus says, the, the key by which you get to the Father, by which you, you are able now to have a relationship with Him, is that you accept what I've done for you on the cross. That I died on the cross to save you from your sins, that I was buried, that I rose again the third day, that I am alive today, that I'm coming back. Jesus' words, Jesus' claims, not just those claims, but to accept that He is God, which means what He says goes. That He is authority and that He's done this for me. And the Bible says if I'll accept that, then I receive that forgiveness. Because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. So Jesus becomes the key. He becomes that, that seminal character in history that is the only one able, because of his unique relationship as God and man, born without sin, he is the only one who is capable of paying for the sin of mankind. If he doesn't pay, I have to. Because I can't pay for my own sin, and you can't pay for my sin, because you've got your own problem. It's like, uh, 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 um, it's, it's, it's like that debt analogy. If you've got your debt, and I've got my debt, and you can't pay off your debt, there's no way you're paying off mine. There's just no way. And so that's the relationship. Jesus then becomes our Savior. And in doing so, the Father is able to be just, because that's what happened on the cross, and merciful. The justifier of them that would come to Him. So as it says, that He might be just, verse 26, and the justifier of Him which believeth in Jesus. So Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The end of, the, of that Romans passage there says, verse 27, Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, by the law of faith. I can, I, no one in heaven will be able to brag that they got themselves there. You can't get yourself to heaven. I can't get myself to heaven. Oh, the only way to get to heaven is by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that's the, that's the essence of what it means to be justified. To be justified means to be declared righteous. It is not that I have not sinned. It is that though I have sinned, I have been judicially declared righteous because my offense has been paid for. And the offense must be paid for or God is not just. And that's why Jesus Christ is so important because Jesus pays for the offense while simultaneously allowing the Father to be just uh, and merciful. Does that make sense? Did that bring your thing full circle or not? 
Well, the way I'm rationalizing this whole thing is you have God is the Old Testament where the wrath <coughs> amongst men is very, very severe and so on. Where Jesus is his son, mm -hmm. he's the forgiveness. He has the right to forgive or whatever. <coughs> and it's not necessarily the judicial or as judicial as God is. You know, in, in your text, mm -hmm. God has to be just. Mm -hmm. Jesus doesn't have necessarily. Well, no, well. Because by the gra grace, you could go to hell. Well. It, yes, but, yes and no. So the reason wh wh where that breaks down is this. Jesus and the Father, Jesus said, I and my Father are one. Yeah, so Jesus came under the law. He didn't come, and he said this specifically, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And so Jesus is not coming to say, God is too hard on people, I'm going to make it easier for them. Jesus came to pay the debt that we could not pay, and then to draw the line in the sand at those who will, uh, who will acknowledge and humble themselves and recognize that they cannot meet God's standard. That's that the only way they get to God is through Jesus. Right. Yes, but specifically through the fact that he took the, the wrath. Yeah, I know, but I am the way, the, the truth, and the life. Right. But, but, but I, I would never say that Jesus is less just than the Father or less even wrathful. They, they, they are in, in perfect harmony at all times. Right. And remember that some of what you might perceive as wrath in the Old Testament was carried out by Jesus. Okay, the angel of the Lord slays the firstborn of Egypt. And we don't know how many people died, but. I would guess at least tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, mm -hmm. depending on how big Egypt's population was at that but time. Noah's Ark was in the Old Testament. Right? Mm -hmm. Noah's Ark, too, yeah. And they're to wipe out the whole. Yeah, everybody that. Right. And in the end, Jesus will come back with a sword out of his mouth to destroy his enemies and rule with a, a rod of iron. That's not a pacified kind of guy, right? That's still a guy that's going to bring justice. And, that, and that, that's the important next point. Is this, again, this is why we did the overview. Because at the end, Jesus, he came the first time, and the Bible says he came not to condemn, but that the world through him might be saved, but only to those that receive him. And then when he comes again, he is coming in, in wrath. He's coming in that anger. It's not that he, it, it's not that he and, and the Father are two different ideas. Uh, they're two different people. There's the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost and they're individual people, but they are one God, one in essence, one in quality, one in character, one in intent, and one in purpose. And so when Jesus comes again to destroy the unbelieving world, that's exactly what he's going to do. He is going to come and destroy and he's not going to stand there. At that point, it's too late. And as a matter of fact, when you talk about Noah's Ark, interestingly enough, in, in 2 Peter... Noah's Ark is used as a picture of that very judgment, that in, of the second judgment. In the same way, Jesus is going to come, and when that door is shut, all that he, everyone has had that opportunity to come to him and to, to, to exercise themselves unto, unto God and unto Christ, and anyone who has failed to do so is doomed and uh, is damned, and that's because they have not accepted Christ as their Savior. Um, 
So that's salvation. Justification being how we are declared righteous. The need, because we're sinners. The problem, we cannot save ourselves. We cannot work our way to God. We cannot get ourselves there on our own merit. We cannot get ourselves there through our own works. Instead, we trust the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that he satisfied the wrath of God for sin. And if we, recognizing we're a sinner, recognizing we cannot get ourselves to there, fling ourselves at the mercy of Jesus Christ, who is the only way to the Father, then the Bible says that we will receive that forgiveness and will be brought into a relationship with God. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. But and and where I was trying to distinguish as we were talking before is is that without that last piece of the puzzle of Jesus, we can't just say that God forgives because really Jesus is the, the, the forgiveness that we receive is not a judicial forgiveness through Christ. He's already purchased it. And he is, if we can call it this, he is he has purchased judicial forgiveness already from the Father who owns that. And now he is meeting it out to those that meet his qualification. He's purchased all of the debt. And there's going to be a lot of people who having never met that qualification, that purchase is going to go unredeemed, if we can call it that, because it has been purchased on the cross, but it's unredeemed. And the redemption of that forgiveness is only to those who identify Jesus Christ as the, way, the only way, truth, and life, and fling themselves at his mercy and humble themselves before him in that manner. The one thing that I really struggle with is this is for by the grace of God you will be saved. But on the other hand, it is the gift of God, mm. Jesus, not of works, lest any man I mean, you know, that'll, that'll get you there. Right. So there's much work and effort you get into it. It's kind of like the way I kind of read that. Well, it's kind of an arbitrary situation. You know, you can be a good sign mind doing a lot of good things, whatever, but it's an arbitrary situation by Jesus that, that you might get the pearly gates or not, or might get through the pearly gates. Well, what makes it arbitrary? There, there is a standard, right? The standard is that we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. Yes, right. So, so I think, I think the key, and it is a little bit tricky, but I think the key is. You can have all the good works you want. You can be a kind person and do all these things. But if you haven't accepted Jesus as your Savior, you don't get in. Right. Right? But if you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, a, a, a natural outflowing of that acceptance will be good works. Yeah, well, that kind of gives you the motivation for doing the good works. Correct. And all that stuff. Correct. But, but it, the, mo the motivation is because you are now a servant of His and He's told you to do that. Well, the way I, I kind of draw the line between the differences. If I'm doing these things because I believe in God and I want to be blessed with the grace of God or whatever, or if I'm doing these good works just so that I show really good to the guys like Greg. Sure. So other people think or, or, doing good or whatever. Or if you're doing the good works to try and earn your way to God. And this is this is the thing that... Without the belief in 
Right. Well, well, but but whether whether or not we do the good works, belief in Christ is the exclusive standard, right? The 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 good works that we do are intended to both validate that we do believe in Christ, and it's intended to be a outward. So, in other words, if um, you know, again, our, our country doesn't have a whole lot of honor left, but in 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 other times and in other places, um, life debt was a thing, right? Somebody saves your life and you now commit your life to them. You serve them for the rest of your life because you say, if, I, if they were not here, I, would not, I wouldn't be here anyway. So now I become theirs, effectively. And this was a, a, an, an honor idea of a life debt. And you're, you've been one step ahead of me the whole night because that's exactly where we're going next with this. Uh, no, it's great. It's perfect. Um, the, the, where we're going next with this is, uh, okay, so if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, what does that mean to you? What does it mean if you've been justified? Because you sit there and say, well, wait a minute. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to work for it. I don't have to earn it. Well, then it becomes arbitrary. Why should I do it, right? Why should I do any of this stuff if it's, if it's not the hinge upon which this turns? The hinge is Jesus Christ. And there's two answers, two elements to that answer. Um, that, that we consider as we continue. If I could back, I said <clears throat> we do this to gain the grace of God and it's really cool. I mean, right. we're genuinely in God and that's why we're right. doing these things to justify in, in our you know, verses. I said justify so I look good in the right. for my peers and all that. But then on the other hand, I just had the thought that you know, sometimes you're just trying to make yourself look good to yourself. Right. Yes. You can be doing all these things privately and all that kind of stuff. And, and when we understand Romans 1, Romans 2, Romans 3, we, we won't fool ourselves anymore, right? Because we know that, that the problem, the symptoms are the things I'm doing on the outside. But the problem's deeper, and I know that. So Jesus talked about this in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He said, uh, you, it, uh, it has been said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that he that looketh after a woman to lust after her in his heart hath committed adultery with her already. I say unto you, uh, you, you, you have read in times past, thou shalt not murder, shalt not kill. But I say unto you that he that hateth a brother in his heart hath committed murder in his heart already. And so this idea that you bring up, Chuck, that, um, that I can sometimes do righteous things either to impress others or to try to convince myself of my own state. So I do external things, and really what I do is this. I do good things, and I look at somebody else, and I find somebody doing worse than me, and I say, well, I'm better than them, so I must be okay. And any time we do those things, in our, uh, as far as our rationalization to our relationship with the Father, what we're doing is we're trying to convince ourselves that we have done enough to please God to get into heaven. And if we do that, of course, then we're, what, what we know in our hearts is that we're not relying upon Christ alone. What we know in our hearts is that we're relying upon our effort. Now, that doesn't mean we don't want to do right, and we're, we're getting there. There is a desire to do right, and when we feel like we fall short of that, there's a, there's a problem, but the problem is not a problem of salvation if we've accepted Christ as our Savior and we're relying upon Him and Him alone. The problem is a problem of sanctification, and that's where we're going next. Um, however, we've got one more thing to talk about here. There's a couple things. <clears throat> 
goodness. <laughs> I, I love the optimism of, and if we have extra time, we can get into the second one. <laughs> I was just smiling to myself at that. I'm, I'm, I, I do this with my wife, too. I, I look at her and I say, I think my sermon this week is going to be shorter. And she's told me, don't do that. Because anytime I say that, it's at least 10 minutes longer than a normal sermon. Uh, and I think, I, I think it's subconscious because I think I've got time. And so I park on things. Sure. So it's, it's kind of a, a bit of a chicken and, an egg, <laughs> chicken and an egg problem, right? Uh, okay, so Romans 5. And I'm, uh, um, this is, it, it is also important, though. Uh, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So God, that, and, and that's speaking of the Father when we see God and Jesus broken up. We have peace with God through Christ. We can't earn peace ourselves. We can't make peace ourselves. But God has, we can have peace with the Father by virtue of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins by whom we have received access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. So when, we, when, when you say, Chuck, that you do right so that uh, we, can, we can have the grace of God, yes, we earn access to that grace through Christ, right? And then as we do these things in Christ. Now, we talked about those, those paths that diverged. We've got the people that are, are saying, I'm going to earn my way to God, and then the people that are saying, I can't earn my way to God. Those that say, I can't earn my way to God, either they live the rest of their lives in misery, which is a lot of people, or they find God through Christ, and they find that redemption and that grace. The other side of the spectrum is attempting to earn grace, and they spend their entire lives trying to earn grace through their works, not to, not to receive grace by their works in Christ, but to earn grace. And that just does not work. And that's what this is saying. We have access by faith into grace through Christ. And rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And then he talks about some of the elements of the results of faith. We glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. So, so when we recognize Jesus Christ, uh, we accept Him by grace through faith, and we have this relationship, we are, it doesn't matter. We, we, the, the things of this life pale in comparison to the things of the life to come. And so we can even go through tribulations knowing that God brings those into our lives to work patience and patience experience and experience hope in the life that we have to come in, um, in heaven. For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So the Bible says, look, it's very rare that you would die for anyone. Maybe... Maybe for someone that you loved with all your heart, maybe you would die for a child or a grandchild uh, weighing the balance of, well, I've only got this many years to live and they've got more years to live. Maybe you would see a soldier that would die for a comrade and, and there, there are, are many who would die for their brothers in arms. And yet, who would die for an evil man? Who would give their life for the worst man? Who would give their life for the man that hates them? Who would say to a person that hates them, I will die for you. 
That's what the Bible says God did for us. That we, through our, our works, showed our rebellion against God. And yet, even though we were rebellious, and our works were against God, and God had every reason to judicially punish us, God said, instead, I'm going to make a way for them to be saved. I'm going to make a way for them to be redeemed. And that's what we have found in Christ. Now, when we realize that, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that we have all fallen short of God, and that we are not, not we, we, we always like to think of ourselves as good people, but in God's eyes, simply put, we aren't. And yet, he died for us. I've said before, if I create something and it doesn't work right, I kick it to the curb and I make something new. God didn't do that. God created us. We rebelled. And he said, I'm going to redeem that. And I'm going to do it at great personal cost. And when we have that mindset, all of a sudden, our actions should start to take on a whole new light. What I'm going to do. Yes, sir. This being uh, Holy Week or whatever, I'm, I'm getting the sense, holy, that the crucifixion, crucifixion that God or that Jesus or whatever is so much like our life today and what's going on in the political structure, you know, where you have these people crucify them, crucify them, crucify them, mm. regardless mm. of you know, the goodness of the God or whatever. On the other side, you can say people haven't changed the stitch. No, they haven't. And, and this is why, you know, people say, oh, we've come so far, we've learned so much. Uh, Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun. We are, we are just the same rebels. We're just the same as them then. We're just all the way back to Adam and Eve. It's all the same. We are, we are selfish. We are, we, 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 we are prone to judge and to make assumptions. We, we, we work on what we want, right? We, we, uh, we interpret truth through the lens of convenience um, and through our own priority structure. And then it's, it's little wonder that the world is where it is because mankind has always been this way. And you're absolutely right. The, the, the spirit of mankind today is just as evil. The idea that when Christ came, doing all of these amazing wonders, they looked at that, and this is what John says, he came into his own and his own received him not. They looked at him and they saw in him the light of God and they said, this is getting in my way. How can we kill him? How can we get rid of him? Because he's in my way. And this is the same legacy of the, of, of the unbeliever today. This is why Christianity is becoming hate speech. Even though Islam is being defended. Though Islam, people are blowing others up. And Christianity, that's not happening. Why? Because Christianity, the way, the truth, and the life, as Jesus said, comes through Christ... And as you represent Christ, you are light in darkness. And there are two different responses to light. One response is, I see the light, the light illuminates me, I realize how bad I am, and I change. So I flick a light on in the morning, and my hair, I don't have hair, so that doesn't work. Um, but my, uh, someone else's hair is going all over the place, right? <laughs> and you've got stuff in your teeth. 
and you've got a smudge on your face, and you say, I've got to get cleaned up because I've flicked the light on, and now I see how ugly I am, and I need to become less ugly before I leave the house. And maybe I need to tuck in my shirt, whatever it might be. Then there's a person who flicks on the light, sees the spinach, and sees the smudges, and says, I don't want to see that, and flicks the light off again so that they don't have to face up to what they are. And, they, and then they say, that stupid light for showing me what I am. The majority of the world gets angry at the light rather than fixing the problem. Because the, and this is why. Because in order to fix the problem, they have to admit that God is real, that they're accountable to him, and that that means there's a standard. And this is what man does not want to believe, does not want to admit that God is real, that I'm accountable to him, and that there's a standard. And Jesus is in the Father, and the Father's in Jesus, which means there is a standard. And if I, and that goes all the way back to Romans 1, knowing God, they glorified him not as God, but became vain in their own imaginations, their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. So they elevate themselves and they say, we're in a post-God era. And that, that liberation from God, which you can trace back to the French Enlightenment and Renaissance, you can trace back to Greek culture, you can trace back to Egyptian culture. It's, it's, it, there's nothing new, it just keeps cycling over and over and over again. This liberation from God brings man to a place where they say no standard. No standard means I can do what I want, then there's chaos. But it all comes back to this, exactly as you said. There is nothing new, we're still there. Man's heart is still in the same place. If Jesus came again, he'd be crucified again. Even doing his wonders and his miracles. Why? Because it's not about proof. It's not about proof. The people that accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, with the exception of a few people who actually go back, and it's, it's the final historicity of Christ that maybe pushed them over the top, but even then, it's not the proof that ever convinces anyone. The Bible says, the just shall live by faith. For by grace are ye saved through faith. It's always faith. And there's simply put two different people. There's people that say, I am willing to accept God on his terms, that I'm accountable, that he, is, that he exists, that I'm accountable, and, and that, that if I don't come through Christ, I'm doomed. And there's those that say, the light tells me God exists, so I'm going to flick off the light. Or, I'm going to put in a different light that makes more sense to me, right? I'm going to put a filter on my phone so that when I look in the mirror, all I see is dog ears instead of seeing smudges, right? And they change their perception of God to meet their desire. And this is mankind. This is the legacy of mankind. Any thoughts on that? You must have a tough sale in the prisons and stuff. It's the easiest place. No, you're kidding. But they're not they're they're not fooling themselves. I, I, I if, if if I go to a hundred homes in Buffalo and I do this from time to time. Uh, it's just not, it doesn't work very well anymore. People don't want you coming to their doorstep anymore. So it's not, you know, it's not very worth it. But if I go to 100 homes in Buffalo with these people that have their lives together, they don't need anything. They don't want to hear it. But if I go to the jail, these people are at their wit's end. 
They know. They know that they're sinners. They know. Society is trying to convince them that they have a disease and that it's incurable, but they know better. They know. And, and they don't even want to believe it's a disease because for all that it takes the pressure off of them to feel like they have to do something, it also gives them zero hope. That they could, because they, they, now they believe that, they're, that, that it's baked into them and that they can't help themselves. And when I look across from them and I say, you don't have a disease, you have sin, and it can be, you can be set free from that, because they are not, they're not at the point anymore where they're fooling themselves into thinking that, that they, they're any good. I don't, may I put it this way? I don't have to get them lost to get them saved. They know that there's a problem. Most people in, in the United States, the people that are successful and such, they, they, don't even, they don't even think there's a problem. They're fine with God, whatever, it doesn't matter. I've got my house, I've got my money, I've got my things, leave me alone. I've been fine without God for this many years, or I've been fine earning my way to God for this many years, I'll be fine. But those that are at rock bottom, they're ready to humble themselves. And so actually the jail, the reason why I started going to the jail is because I wasn't finding, uh, uh, nobody else would listen in the community. Uh, the jail was the place where people would listen, um, ironically. But that's what Jesus did too. You know, the Bible says that Jesus didn't come only to, as a matter of fact, he came and he explicitly said, I come not to save the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. What does that mean? Well, the righteous, I can't do anything for them. They're self-righteous. They don't think they need me. Who, 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 who needs me? The sinner. So that's why the harlots flocked to him and the publicans flocked to him and the, the sinners flocked to him. It wasn't because the sinner has a... The, the sinner. It wasn't because the, the, the societal sinner has anything more than the other person has as far as the ability to be saved. It's simply that the societal sinner knows how wretched they are, whereas the self-righteous man has convinced himself he's not a wretch. And so he has no problem. The majority of the people that we interact with on any given day, the biggest part of the problem is convincing them that they're a sinner and that they're a wretch and that they can't get themselves to heaven and that they're not good enough for God. That's the hardest part of the job. Once they realize they're not good enough for God, it's not, not as hard to build them back up in, in, in truth. But the problem is we all think that we can earn our way or we don't want to think about it at all or we've changed God and manipulated him to be the kind of God that will accept me on my terms instead of on his terms. And none of those things work. I remember uh, talking with one girl, her name is Amara, in the jail and I sat across from her and I said, so who is God to you? And she said, uh, you know, God is Jesus and, and, uh, Jesus, and what did Jesus do? Jesus died on the, uh, on, on the cross and what did that do? Uh, well, I don't really know. And, and, and I said, well, and I, I gave her, uh, I talked to her about um, sin and, and she said, well, no, no, God, God, God knows me and understands me and, and he'll be okay. He knows that I mean well. And... I said, I think the God that you have, that you're talking about is, is not the God of the Bible. And I walked her through the God of the Bible, that God is just, that God is holy, that God, that God deals with sin. And, and she realized for the first time that she had been creating a God in her own image, Romans 1. A God that's not going to punish her because he, he, means, uh, he knows she means well. So he's just going to kind of fudge the facts for her. 
And the fact of the matter is, there's plenty of people that, that believe in a God like that, but it's not the God of the Bible. And that's why the Bible's so important, is because he has revealed himself, and so we trust the book. So, Romans 5 continues, um, much more, verse 9, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled we shall be saved by his life. And now, and not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death upon, passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. So in other words, when Adam sinned, all mankind fell. And this is where we get the doctrine that we call original sin. The fact that man is born sinful. That there is this sin that, that carries us from generation to generation that we have original sin. Even, at, even in those that did, do, did not sin after the similitude of Adam's transgression. In other words, they didn't eat of a fruit or they didn't directly rebel in that sense, but they're still sinners. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift, verse 15. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. Adam's sin costs all men the problem. Jesus' righteousness gives all men the chance for a solution. It's a one-to-one -one transaction, Adam to all mankind. Now it's a one-to-one -one transaction, Jesus to all who will receive him. And that's not everybody, right? This is very important. Because Jesus died and paid for the sins does not mean everyone goes to heaven because we must accept Jesus Christ as our Savior on His terms. He came into His own. His own received Him not, John 1, but as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. Um, I'm going to skip down to these last couple of uh, verses here. Verse 20, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So I define justification for you there. I've already given it to you. A judicial act of God by which he declares that all claims of the law are satisfied against his wrath on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Um, it's not that we become righteous. It's that we are declared righteous. Uh, uh, we... Now, we're not made righteous, we are not righteous, but we are declared righteous because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Justification is sourced in God alone, fully just through the blood of Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone, and then evidenced by our works. And this is where, where we're going with that, James uh, chapter 2. James writes this, in verses 14 to 26. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he have, hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto him, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. 
Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well, but the devils believe, also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son? Okay, so now we have this contradiction, right? Wait a minute, now we're talking about being justified by works. How is that possible when we read in Romans 3 that we are not justified by works? So that we see that man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. So James is giving us a brand new perspective on this. And the perspective is, is this sort of an idea. That we have God and we have faith and man. And man gets to God by faith. But faith is uh, somewhat of an intangible, right? Faith is something that I can say I have exercised myself in faith. I can give illustrations to show faith. In other words, if you've ever been on one of those team building exercises where you have to stand and let yourself fall and the team catches you, that's faith. Right? Faith is not groundless. It's not baseless. It's not blind. I look back. I see that there are people there. I look back. I see that their arms are out. I look back and I say, okay, there are people there big enough to catch me. And then I fall back. But at some point, I am putting myself at their mercy. So faith is, is not blind. It's not, uh, it, it, it has a, uh, an element of understanding to it. And yet there is still a step, a leap that must be made. And James says, how can I determine whether or not I have that faith? Well, once I have passed through faith, works will be the natural result. That faith anticipates works and compels works. I am not... The distinction is that I am not working, let me use a red one here, I am not working to get to faith, I get to faith and faith brings about works. If I see no works, if there is nothing in me that desires to serve the Lord, to do what's right, if there is nothing in me that is compelled to by virtue of what Christ has done. If I'm compelled to work because I'm afraid I'll go to hell, then I'm self-righteous. I'm trusting in myself. If I'm compelled to work because of what Jesus has done for me, that's normal. If I say I have faith, but I have no works, there's something wrong. If I say I have faith in Jesus Christ alone, but I do not feel compelled to serve him and love him, there is something wrong. Because those that truly have faith will be compelled to love him and serve him. This is what James presents and what we'll see uh, in Romans 6, 7, and 8, which will have to be next week. Um, this is what James presents and Paul presents as the natural outworking, the natural expectation of our faith. That faith will produce works. Faith will produce a desire. And, and notice what he says here. Thou, say, that thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well, the devils also believe and tremble. The idea that I know in my head 
that there's a God and that Jesus is God and that Jesus died on the cross and Jesus rose again. The devils know that in their heads too. That's, that's not what it means to believe on Jesus Christ to be saved. To believe on Jesus Christ is not to know. To believe on Jesus Christ is to place my full faith and trust in it. In other words, and I, I've given the wheelbarrow analogy a couple of times here, uh, th those of you that know it, but in other words, faith is not me looking at those people that are about to catch me and say, yes, those people are there and they will catch me. That's not faith. If I'm just looking back at those people and saying, those people exist and they will catch me, but when I do the work of faith, I fall back, that's when faith becomes real. So how do I know that I actually have faith? Do you have works? Is it there? Do you have works compelled by your recognition and love for Christ? Not works that are intended in any way to try to earn faith or earn your way to God. It just That's called self-righteousness. That's not, that's not saving faith. Saving faith does not work our way to faith or work our way to God. Saving faith is casting myself wholly in trust on what Jesus Christ has done for me, on his death, his burial, his resurrection, saying, I can't earn it. I can't get myself there. Only Jesus can get me to the Father. And then when that happens, the Bible says we're created a new man in Christ. And we will then have a desire in our hearts by Christ, by the, the grace of God that, that then works within us, to live out our faith and thus to do the right things that the Lord would have us to do. And so James says, if you see a, a brother or sister in Christ that's naked and destitute of food, and you look at them and you say, wow, I, I really hope that you'll get some food, and I hope that you'll, you'll find some clothing, and then you walk away um, without having done anything, well, there's a problem here, right? You say you want something for them, but you don't actually care, or else you do something for them. That's the, that's the analogy is I can say I have faith and then I can walk away without ever doing anything for Christ but if I try to say that I need to realize, recognize that's, that's not true faith. True faith says because of what Christ has done for me I'm going to do this for him. True faith anticipates and expects works. It is not the works that establish the faith. Works are the evidence of faith we don't work to the faith. We don't work to God. We go through, God, uh, through faith to God and works are the natural result. And that's what I say here in the bullet points. Not that you must work to be justified, but that if you have no compulsion to serve the Lord, you reveal that you have not been justified. The immediate results of justification... Peace with God, favor with God, release from guilt, condemnation, shame, salvation from the power of sin, the eventual results of justification on page 6, salvation from the penalty of sin on the day that we stand before God, salvation from the presence of sin when, God, when, when in heaven there is no sin, what the Bible calls adoption of sons that we are brought into as an heir with Christ into God's blessings, and then glorification one day. That's justification. 
Next week, we'll have to start with sanctification and working through um, what it means to be sanctified. Yeah. Hmm. Got through a lot less than I was hoping. <laughs> uh, questions? Um, so Thoughts? Yes. So faith and works. Um, so obviously there's good people or people who the Bible would say are like doing what God doesn't want you to do but not for God. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's say you have faith but you're working, doing stuff the Bible would say and it's not for God. Like that, that wouldn't be the same. And so like the works you're supposed to do with faith are unto God kind of? Well, yeah, right? Or are you just supposed to do, because like they could be a good person who's not necessarily doing it for God but they also have faith. Or does that just because they have faith and they're doing the works, even? Um, do you get what I'm kind of? Saying? I I think so. So a scenario where a person has faith, and are we assuming true faith? Yeah. Okay. So we're assuming that a person has true faith, and then they do things, but not necessarily motivated by Christ, but rather just motivated by maybe traditions or how they've grown up or whatever the case well, is. Like Chuck said earlier. You do it so that other people recognize that you're yeah. doing good things. That kind of thing. Sure. Yeah, I do lots of rotary and it seemed that's what they're all about. Right. I mean, they were doing good works around town and all that kind of stuff, but it was all kind of show, you know, for the other members and also for the community, whatever. Yeah. Is that what you're describing, Connor? Well, not necessarily. Um, like, let's say you just like uh, like to do stuff for people, not. Because it makes you feel good yourself. Yeah, yeah. That, that's kind of what I'm going at. Like, not for show, mm-hmm. but for yourself. Um, but then it's not because it's for yourself, right? So you would have to do works for God. For how? Um, it's, it's, it, the, the, what, what you're describing here is somewhat nuanced. It's not necessarily that everything that I do, every, well, as, as you mature, it ought to be this way, but it's not necessarily that every person that has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ to be saved is going to be thinking every time they do something for Christ, you know, because he died for me. Uh, there are people that are natural, they have a natural propensity to be kind and those sorts of things, and it's just their character, their nature. And even before they were saved, let's say, before they had exercised faith, they were this way. But what, 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 that. Would it be like now, because you have faith, you want to do it for God too? And and there will be a there will be a compulsion to do it for something other than your. So it's not so much. I I do good things as well because I know that there's a blessing. There's a blessing. There's there's a blessing to giving. There's a blessing to kindness. There there is a natural blessing uh, among other people, even not just uh, with God. But the the real question is is this: as far as the works go. Yes, it's not to say that everybody who, who has faith, every work that they do will be compelled by a love for Christ or a desire for Christ. Um, but the danger, the one area of concern is if what they are doing is to earn favor with God and they feel like if they don't do it, then they're going to fall short of, of salvation. That's where self-righteousness comes in. If they are doing it to look good for themselves or others in order to earn either just for self-righteous reasons, just to look godly among others, which, by the way, Christians can do as well. Matthew 6 and 7 warn about this. Do not your alms to be seen of men. Don't, don't pray to be seen of men, because if so, you have no reward of God. 
you've already received your reward, the Bible says. If you just pray to be seen of men or you just give to be seen of men, God rewards you nothing for that. Uh, that can happen whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. Um, and so there are opportunities where a person can be a believer, but their works can be wrongly motivated, either just for self or uh, to be seen of men. And while that does not in- inherently mean that they're an unbeliever, what it does mean is that God will not reward them for those works. There will be no grace given to them for that. And R- Matthew 6 and 7 tells us that. The danger zone is the one who says in order to earn faith or to earn salvation or to earn favor with God uh, or, or to, to justify myself, I'm going to do works. And they look at the works they commit and, and, and say, because of my works, I must be saved or I must be right with God. And that's self-justification. Um, that, yeah, the, what you ask is a little bit nuanced because... Um, as the Bible presents it, there really is no situation where the Bible anticipates what a believer does apart from what he's been made in Christ. May I say it that way? The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. So even if the newness becomes standard, comfortable, it becomes the new me. You know, I've been saved for a really long time. I can't remember I was saved young, and I was saved you know, almost, almost 30 years ago now. I've been saved for so long that I don't, I don't know what I was like. I can't, I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't have a comparison of this is me then, this is me now, and I can, you know, say, this has always been me. And so for me to try to parse my motivations can be difficult. Um, but what I do know is this, that, that as, as I've grown and as I've learned what is right, I've desired to do what is right. And I've not desired to do what is right to establish my righteousness with God, but I've desired to do what, what is right in, in light of the fact that I'm a believer and it is right. Greg, did you have something to... I don't yeah, what I would describe is as I've grown in my faith, I do what's right now and enjoy it. Before I did what was right because I was compelled to. It was, so it was a matter of discipline to do what was right, not, na- not necessarily by preference or natural behavior. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and first John, first John 4. I've got kind of an example. When, when all of this started, it kind of hit me 15 minutes ago that this sounds dumb, but I have no idea why. And the example is, and this is stupid, I realized there probably many people, but I was walking the dog tonight before class, and there was a construction worker building a home that obviously had cut himself, and he was trying to wash it off, and then having an extremely difficult time getting a first aid kit out. So I asked if he was okay, and unfortunately I still do not know Spanish, so we couldn't communicate very well other than he gave me a wave. So I continued to walk past, and then I finally thought, well, that's stupid. You know, maybe I should help the guy out. So I wound up, you know, cleaning the cut and putting a Band-Aid on it and tape. But my point to the story is, I have no idea there was nobody around other than that construction worker. I have no idea why. 
but I, I certainly didn't tell myself I should go help clean a cut because of the Lord. So what does that what does that mean? Is it just anything or nothing or what? Why would a person do that for no reason? I guess is. That's kind of like what I was saying too. Yeah. Well, and and the 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 reason why you know we, we we try to be careful with these things is because there are so so we we live in a Judeo Christian culture, which means I don't I don't know if you've ever driven in any other country, but um, the way people uh, for for all of the traffic problems that we have, uh, it is amazing how well people handle obeying like traffic lights in this country compared to other countries. You know, we, when, when uh, I was in China, the, everything is a suggestion. Every sign is a suggestion, right? And, and it's, it's very different here. And the reason why it's different here is because there is some sort of a, a culture of obedience, uh, a culture of recognizing that, that law and order matters, these sorts of things. And so, again, we need to be careful with that works idea. We can't say, and nobody can say, because I do certain things... I am in Christ, but what? And and we'll we'll get into this next week or maybe the week after. Uh, the flesh and the spirit, and assurance of salvation. How do I actually know I'm saved? We're we're kind of breaching that a little bit. Um, I've already got the sheet here, Tom. I already sent it to you so you can read through it, uh, just in case we made it to that that this week. But um, but how do I know that I'm saved? And the Bible does give clear. Elements that say these are the things that will be present in you when you know you're a believer. And one of the things, as Greg said, um, that's in our packet is um, um, first should be First John four, I think. Nope, it must not be. Um, oh, it's First John five, two and three. It says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not grievous. Um, that's, it's the next week's, Greg, if you're looking for it. Um, it's, so I'll get them to you. But that we keep God's commandments and His commandments aren't grievous to us. In other words, we, 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 we end up desiring to keep His commandments and loving His commandments and desiring to do what's right. And um, if there is a propensity in our heart to want to do things, such as I want to help that person on the street, it's just my nature to do so, well, then maybe I should be looking for it in the, in the changes in my nature. In other words, what are the things that God asks me to do that I might chafe at, but I still do anyway and desire to do because I love him, not because I'm trying to earn my way to him. And, and at the end of the day, the fact of the matter is this. Only each individual person can know. Whether or not you are, you and God knows whether or not you're in Christ. Because I can look at, I, you, you can look at me and I can be the most clean cut guy and I can be the best behaved and I could not at all believe that Jesus, as a matter of fact, the most moral people in this nation is by and large the Mormons and they do not, they, they, will, they will tell you they do not believe Jesus is God and that he died on the cross and rose again. And they do not believe the redemptive work. Those people are very, very moral, but they have not received Jesus Christ as their Savior. But they have disciplined their flesh, and we'll talk about this again uh, in a later lesson. They have disciplined their flesh, 
And they are then using their disciplined flesh to try to earn merit with God. And if they earn enough merit with God, then they get to become a little God themselves, right? Um, if you're familiar with Mormonism at all. So this is, th- this is one of those balances where you search your own heart. And the Bible says the Spirit of God helps us with this for you to know, am I in the faith? And don't look at the things you do. Look at your faith. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins, that, that he rose again from the grave, that he's alive, that he did everything he said he did? If you believe that, then the other things you're going to believe is all the other stuff he taught. And then when you start believing the other stuff that he teaches, then you're going to start to say, wow, Jesus tells me that I need to do some things. And then you're going to find that there's something within you that makes you want to do some things. And it's not just there's something within me that makes me want to help my neighbor out because that's what good neighbors do. It's there's something within me that says, I just said that and that was wrong. And I need to not say that anymore. I had that thought and I need to not think that because it does not please God. I have something within me that, that is telling me that the things that, that, that would be normal or, or desirous or, or, or even socially acceptable are just not right and, and, and I need to not do them. And I don't want to do them anymore because Christ doesn't want me to. And that's, that's the idea. That's the idea that faith anticipates works. That um, we will, and, and then as you grow in your faith, you grow to a greater and greater desire of, of weighing the options. In other words, we'll find out next week that when we, when we sin as believers, we fall out of fellowship with God. We don't lose our salvation, but we fall out of fellowship with God. And there comes a point where you are so close to God and love Him and desire to be, be in fellowship with Him because His Spirit t- uh, speaks to you and teaches you and, and you want that so much that you are unwilling to sin because you don't want to lose what you got. And the, the cost of doing wrong is worse than the pleasure in doing wrong. And uh, you might liken this to uh, your relationship with your wife, that there are things that you would do that would displease your wife and upset her. And then as you grow in your love toward her, it comes to a point where your desire to maintain a good relationship with your wife and to please her because you love her outweighs your desire to do whatever selfish thing it was that ticks her off. And that comes with love and with growth and with a fellowship where my desire to fellowship with my wife is deeper than my love for that thing that, that separates us. And it's the same with God, only on a much, much you know, higher level that as we grow, there is that compulsion. But on this very basic level, on the essence level, um, the, the, the works that we do, the compulsions of our heart, will, will help us see this, whether or not we've actually exercised faith in the Lord Jesus Christ unto salvation, that we have truly left all and followed Him, put everything on the table and said, I'm not going to trust in myself. I can't earn my way. That it's only by Jesus Christ alone that I can get to heaven. And then once I'm there, I should naturally begin to see the evidence of of it in my heart and in my life. As I read the Word of God, I should desire to submit myself to the Word of God. I should understand what the Word of God says. 
And if I don't see any of that, and again, we'll talk about this more in, in, in assurance, then I should be questioning whether or not I'm in the faith. So that's justification. That's the foundation of what Christ did for us and our relationship to the Father, that it goes through the Son. And this is important for us to understand. And it's important for us to understand because there's uh, so many people, the, those people that are religious, but they've gone that way of earning it, that just don't understand that, that it has to come through Christ, that they cannot earn their way. They cannot work their way to heaven, that it has to be through Christ's work. And that's the essence of justification. Okay, any other thoughts or questions or comments? Okay, we'll pick up there next week. We'll do sanctification, and then we'll get into assurance and such and, and uh, keep plugging away. Thank you.